Welcome back to Here and There, the podcast of the Germanic American Institute. This is Günther and Audra hosting for a brand new episode. We are titling This Fortnight in History and the German Election. This is the podcast of the Germanic American Institute. Welcome. Welcome. Where Germanic-speaking European countries, Germany, Deutschland, Deutschland. Austria, Österreich, Österreich. Switzerland, Schweiz. Blend with the Midwestern United States. Hello. We are here and there, and we invite you to come along on the journey. First and foremost, Audra, how are you? I'm good. When we're recording this, it is Friday, so good vibes. Good vibes. <laughs> Uh, perhaps in, in the beginning, in sort of the announcement of the title of this particular episode, This Fortnight in History and the German Election, it sounds a little bit different than what we commonly do, and there is a good reason for that. So allow me to introduce a couple of changes that will be going forward into our podcast production. So This Fortnight in History is essentially dedicated to be sort of a two-week uh, deep dive into particular days in history, Germany, Switzerland, and Austria. And we're bringing certain trivial pursuit kind of knowledge pieces to your attention, whether you find them interesting for future conversation pieces, or if you actually want to bounce off a conversation back to us by emailing us at podcast at gaimn.org. That is the intent behind that. Then after this section, we go into our, what usually is our interview section. We are keeping our interviews going, of course. And in this episode, particularly, we are revisiting the German election and discussing the newly formed government and to find out what's actually in store for the Germans and potentially how it also applies to the German-American relationship. And we are doing this with a guest that we'll introduce later on in the show. And then last but not least, we are wrapping up with a little bit of a call to action, pointing towards our website, what events we have planned, what classes are coming up. And of course, we always need us, need you to essentially be aware of us, rate us, tell us know what we need to do better and share your thoughts via email. So that's going to be the new structure. It doesn't just come by accident, but we actually have a little bit more of a reason behind that. Audra, what do you think? Just first, first thoughts. Oh, well, I mean, Gunter, the, the people get to hear our voices more, for one. We get to riff a little <laughs> bit more and show some uh, personality. <laughs> That's a great reason to do it. But also, I mean, I'm learning a lot just by doing this research on people and events and places, and it's expanding my view. And now I'm making a little list of people I need to go back and look at, their works I need to look at, or historical events. And I'm like, hmm. I should probably do more research on that as someone who studied German. Um, yes, yes, you did. Uh, and I, I suppose also I, a good reason to tie back to this is just the mission of the GEI in and of itself. It's, it's a cultural institute. We are not just here to have interviews, which of course we are continuing to do. And I think uh, we've had some really phenomenal guests on there who spent a lot of time with us and couldn't be more thankful for that. But at the same time, it's also our cultural mission just to dive a little bit deeper and just cater to a larger audience with more than just one topic, but also with a variety of perhaps historic reviews and, and important dates throughout history. Now, this being said, shall we jump into it? 
I think so. Now, stepping back in time a little bit. Some of those things may not really be interesting to all of you, but uh, hear me out. In 1891, January 8th, the birth of Walter Bote in Oranienburg in Germany. Now, this perhaps doesn't mean much until you put the dots together. Bote was a physics professor at the universities of Berlin, Gießen and Heidelberg. He and Hans Geiger established the particle nature of electromagnetic radiation. And let us now, I think the bells are going off. The Geiger counter is the product of their invention. He discovered basically the strange radiation given off by beryllium, which was later identified as neutron radiation. Now, we're talking about terms here that are far beyond my scope of knowledge. But what is interesting is that he also won the Nobel Prize for Physics for development of a method of detecting subatomic particles. So Hans Geiger, the Geiger counter, did not just come from Hans alone, but Walter Bote had a little bit of a hand to play in that development, which if you should ever be asked in a future Trivial Pursuit physics edition, now you know. I do think I will be avoiding any trivial <laughs> pursuit questions in the physics category, but now maybe I have a little bit of an upper hand. <laughs> <laughs> and to be, to be absolutely honest, I'm actually surprised I made it through this without stumbling over the words. I mean, those are some big words that I commonly don't use. We are not necessarily going chronologically by date, if you will, January 8th, January 9th, and so forth. I know that Audra has a couple of uh, women prepared. Who, who do you have on deck? Of course. Well, yes, when, when looking for uh, people or events to cover in history within this two-week span in January, it became very apparent that, for the most part, websites or other online resources were uh, highlighting men. Yes. And so... Of course, I took it upon myself to uh, dig up some pretty cool women in history who had, in German history, uh, who are maybe a bit more overlooked simply because they are women. Um, moving to January 12th, 1910, Louisa Rayner was born. Um, she was a British, German, American actress. Uh, she left Nazi Germany for Hollywood and soared to fame in the 1930s as the first star to win back-to-back -back Oscars. And then she eventually quit film. She, she did what she needed to do and she quit film at the peak of her career and she became a wife and a mother and supposedly a mountain climber. Um, but according to the New York Times, she was just shy, 13 days shy of her, her 105th birthday, making her the longest-lived Oscar recipient. No one else has done that. Like wow. she, she passed in 2014, and no one else has, no other Oscar recipient has well, lived as long as she. Even more amazing that she's won back to back. That that cannot have happened all too frequently either. No, no, no. <laughs> so she's. Pretty amazing. She starred in the 1937's The Good Earth, in 1936, The Great Siegfeld, and in 1938, The Great Waltz. So she, these are older films, of course, maybe some of you 
They ring, for some of you, maybe they ring some bells, but for me, as a 22-year-old, they do not. You know, honestly, I do not recall any of those titles either, but uh, in case that any one of you have seen any one of those movies, shoot us an email. Let us know whether it was worth watching them, and uh, if so, where we can even find them. I'm sure they are not on the usual streaming channels and platforms, uh, so it would be really interesting to find out what those movies were about. You're right, there is uh, an imbalance in the books of history. Men certainly were favored. I think that is probably a sign of the times, uh, the historical times. But uh, considering that, I actually do have a phenomenal lady loaded for your attention just as well. Unfortunately, it's not the birth of, but the death of Caroline Lucrezia Herschel. She died in Hanover, Germany. And Herschel was the sister of the astronomer Sir William Herschel. And some years after William had immigrated to England, he actually asked her to come along as well. And her early assignments, working with her brother, were to keep the house and the house clean and to grind and polish the mirrors for her brother's astronomy job, if you will, and, and ambitions. However, not just uh, sitting by the sidelines, she soon began to do much of the mathematical calculations of her brother's work herself. And after she began to do that, she also had her own telescopic observations in which she discovered three nebula and eight comets. In 1798, she completed a catalog of 560 stars missing in the British catalog. By 1822, she had completed a catalog of 2,500 nebula and star clusters. She was given a gold medal by the British Astronomical Society, and after her brother's death, she returned to Germany to continue her work there. This gets to say that behind a lot of strong men in history are probably much stronger women, as uh, I think we've also evidenced not too long ago by uh, the NASA movie. Uh, NASA, who uh, had um, in the 60s... Hidden Figures. Hidden Figures. That was the movie, exactly. Yes. So phenomenal female influence that I think frequently gets a little subdued. And I think you're right. History leans towards men. Yes, I was pleasantly surprised when I was doing some background and I looked up her brother that in his short little bio, when you initially Google him, uh, he is, or it's, it tells a little bit about him. And then it says like the brother of Carolina Herschel. So like she is a prominent figure in his story as well as vice versa. But I don't know if I did in my research, in my perusing, if you will. <laughs> um, the reason why, I mean, initially, like William sent for her to come to England. And that was mostly because at the age of 10, Carolina was struck with typhus, um, which stunted her growth. And she never grew taller than four foot three. Oh, really? Yeah. And she suffered vision loss in her left eye as a result of her illness as well. And so her family assumed that she would just never get married and that she probably wouldn't amount to a whole lot. And so her mother had her uh, trained to be a house servant, which is what she did when, she, when uh, her brother sent for her. She worked as his housekeeper for a short time before it became evident that she was capable of the math medical calculations and all the other astronomical uh, research that he was doing as well. Amazing. Jumping ahead, 
January 16th, 1917. And of course, uh, for those who are the, the history files, if you will, yes, we are leaving out a mountain of phenomenal people. But guess what? We'll come back to this again next year and we'll pick different people. But January 16th, 1917, particularly interesting for the German-American relationship. The German minister, Arthur Zimmermann, sent a telegram through the German ambassador in Washington to the German ambassador in Mexico offering Mexico an alliance against the United States. He proposes that Mexico will be assisted in retaking Texas, New Mexico and Arizona, basically including those three states back into the fold of Mexico. The telegram has been intercepted and decoded by British intelligence. This really has all the makings of a spy novel and given to President Woodrow Wilson. The telegram becomes instrumental in forming American public opinion against Germany. And I think this is really where it hurts a little bit, uh, but understandably so. And uh, for entering the war, as Wilson gives it to the press in March. Now, quite interesting to recognize that this was only in 1917. Obviously, a lot of things happened uh, from 1917 through the 19, uh, probably early 50s, I would say, with the, of course, World War II and then uh, reliance upon American influence to essentially free Europe from its shackles. But quite fascinating to see and recognize how fast things can change, particularly considering that the, essentially, the mood was quite against the Germans for quite a while. Yes, and thank goodness we are where we are today. It's, I think, some very dramatic events have happened to get us where we are, so. Yeah, and I mean, in, in, the, in the history, chronologically, if you will, 1917 to 2017 or 2022 or 105 years, this is not a lot of time. No. Let's do one last one. I know that you have one other significant lady loaded somewhere, I'm sure. Yes, I do. Um, the On January 14th, 1870, Ida Demol was born. Um, Ida was a German feminist, poet, muse, and avid supporter of the arts. She was born to a well-established Jewish family, and later Ida married Leopold Auerbach, a Jewish businessman and philanthropist from Berlin. Um, and there she lived, or with him, she lived in a cute and comfy apartment or life in Berlin. They had one child, but it wasn't a very particularly um, joyful marriage. It was really just a marriage that her father put together because it was convenient, it fit. And as a sort of bourgeois woman herself, it was sort of her duty to take on this role. But uh, Ida eventually separated from Auerbach and moved to Pankow um, in Berlin, where she would meet her second husband, Richard Demol, and they lived a pretty good life together. But uh, what, from what I read, she lived sort of subordinately to her husband's, mm -hmm. but in her work outside of her husband's, that's where she really flourished. So she was a part of and helped establish women's clubs around Hamburg. Ida uh, was a fervent supporter of women's suffrage, joining in the ranks of various pressure groups in the early, early 20th century and serving as chief editor from 1912 to 1916 of the monthly report Frau und Staat, um, which was issued by the German Union for Women's Right to Vote. Um, she, in 1916, she co-founded the Women's Society for the Advancement of German Art. And then after the death of her husband and son, 
Dame uh, devoted herself to the preservation of her husband's estate, but uh, sadly, she did commit suicide in 1942 as deportations loomed over Jewish folks in wow. the Hamburg area. Yeah, I mean, yes. just so many just magnificent people throughout history. Uh, obviously impossible to to address them all, but we'll do our best. And since we are trying to do our best here, let's let's see how this actually resonates with you. So if you have any input, any feedback to the uh, fortnight in history sort of segment, if you will, that uh, will be recurrent in the podcast, please just shoot us an email. It's podcast at org, and let us know what you would want us to put in there, if there's anything that you want, want us fact-checked on, or if there are any additions uh, that we can include in the next episode, perhaps you have any personal experiences with any one of those subjects. Now, before we transition out of this, uh, there are two more quick line items that are going towards the political nature of things. In uh, 1993, a German court in Berlin, that was January 12th, drops the charges against Erich Honecker. And those charges were related to the shootings at the German German border, so basically at the reunification, with the justification that he was 80 years old at the point in time and terminally ill. However, just one year later, January 13th, 1994, Honecker leaves Germany for Chile. And he had been, as you probably know, the leader of East Germany prior to that. And after the reunification, there was a possibility of trying him for the crimes against humanity. But due to his cancer, he was actually not just spared the trial, but also allowed to leave Germany. Now, that's the political side of things. And that also now is, I think, the perfect segue to introduce our guest of today and talk about the recent election in Germany. We are revisiting the German election of 2021, discussing the newly formed government and find out what's in store for the Germans and how it also applies to those who want to visit Germany and perhaps also the German-US relationships. And to give us a bit more insight into the German political landscape, a familiar voice is joining us. Uh, back to what uh, would be the trio. Katrin is back on air with us. Katrin, back from the motherland. How are you? Moin, I'm well. So, German election, uh, quite different than the US elections go down. And uh, this one in particular that we are addressing, we have done two casts before, took place on September 26th. And Olaf Scholz replaced the, who I would consider iconic Angela Merkel, who stepped down after 16 years as probably one of the most powerful women in politics altogether. And uh, what also struck me as interesting in looking a little bit behind the scenes into the numbers, the election featured 76.6% voter turnout. This is not news for Germany. For the U.S., this is an incredible number. Katrin, any ideas why we see such a difference in voter turnout between Germany and the U.S.? Well, first of all, until about 1988, um, we had um, voter participation in the 80s and sometimes even in the 90s. So for Germany, 76 is not a bad result by any stretch. Um, it has been as low as 70%, but it is not extraordinarily high either. Um, I believe that people are generally much more invested in political processes. It seems also that um, the perception is it's not quite as vast and quite not as 
driven by partisanship as it might be in the US, one could say. And of course, we have a history where it wasn't possible to really vote um, per your conscience in the Third Reich. And we had the brief intermission of the Weimar Republic, but democracy is generally something that is very cherished in Germany and people participate. Could this also have something to do with the U.S. generally being decided between two parties and Germany being decided between uh, probably what is 30, 40, 50 parties, but only, I don't know, probably 10 or 15 are represented actually in Bundestag. So there are a lot of smaller groups, a lot of larger groups. Is that sort of an idea that could contribute to people really wanting to make their voice heard at the ballot box? I think it has something to do with choice. Um, if you're looking at the Republican Party, for example, it's not like it's a uniform situation. You know, they are talking about the Big Ten, the GOP, but really we have so many factions in there where some of them have absolutely nothing to do with another group within the same party. So this gives the illusion of really not having a lot of choice. It's two, two parties. While in Germany, you can maybe gear it a little bit more towards your specific um, interests or your specific preferences. Although I think this history of democracy being much more recent still plays a very, very big role. And also the emphasis in schools on political education and how important it really is to participate. So when we look at uh, how the election ended up to, to be decided between all the players that are now in the Bundestag. We talked about the uh, the Amper coalition, so the three different colors essentially that came together. Is it still that way? What, if you were to summarize the outcome of the election, what does it actually look like right now? Yeah, we have the, you know, traffic light coalition or the Ampel coalition um, with the SPD standing for the red color, the FDP, the free liberals for the yellow color, and the Green Party for, you guessed it, the green color. Um, they are still acclimatizing, of course, 16 years you know, in the opposition, not for the SPD so much, but uh, for the other parties, of course, is a long time. And um, it takes a while to get going then and taking over from the other government. Um, I believe they are still arriving in reality. And some of those arrivals have been rather abrupt. Um, for example, the EU Commission declared a few days ago, as a matter of fact, two hours before the switch of the year, um, that they would uh, recognize or they're planning on recognizing nuclear power and natural gas power as sustainable. As you can imagine, for the Green Party, who really has its beginning in the anti-nuclear um, power movement, that is a bit of harsh reality that they have to look at. Um, and chances are very low that Germany um, could switch that and actually not have nuclear power declared as a sustainable form of energy. Of course, in Europe, we have several players. France would be the leader of the nuclear power um, lobby, I want to say. Um, and they are very interested in declaring this to be a sustainable way of uh, supplying power because they're really invested in it. While Germany had three more nuclear power plants go offline now at the 31st of December. Angela Merkel back in the day when Fukushima happened um, made it very clear that she is not a supporter of nuclear power anymore. 
you know, let's all remember she's a physicist professor, mm -hmm. physicist uh, scholar, um, or physics. Physics, I think. Uh, physicist. Physics, yes. Um, so for her to have the opinion, this is not something that we can do for no insurance agency in the world taking on insuring a nuclear power plant, um, the direction was fairly clear at this point. And um, there are three more nuclear power plants that will be uh, taken off, I believe, by 2023. But don't quote me on that. Um, so Germany's direction is very clear. France, on the other hand, says, okay, well, coal, that's all great. But it is not something that one can use in order to keep pollution down. So we are investing in nuclear power. And those are very different interests. But uh, particularly what I found interesting in the last number of years, uh, talking about Germany and the direction towards uh, essentially renewable energy sources, is it still, in case you know about this, uh, is it still applicable that German households could place solar panels on their roof and then essentially write them off over seven years uh, to become self-sustainable households and then potentially contribute back to the grid, which would be indicative of Germany going much more towards renewables, which probably would play in favor of the Green Party, of course, and certainly also a better and cleaner country. And does that potentially then also stand a little bit in contrast to what France wants to do as one of the business partners of Germany? I do not know what the specifics mm -hmm. are of putting solar energy on your house. I can tell you that here in the U.S., my family is right now in the process of doing that. All right. Um, but of course, it is something that is supported in Germany. And you're right, with the Green Party being a large part of government, those incentives are only going to become bigger rather than smaller. Um, interestingly, we have now seen that uh, 16 years of the CSU, the Bavarian party being part of power, they have passed laws in Bavaria that makes it anything but impossible to set up a wind energy windmills. So they want the clean energy from the north, but nobody's allowed to put up windmills in Bavaria. So with them being not in power anymore now, that will change and it will certainly be another step towards sustainability. Um, so you can see that even within Germany, not everybody's exactly on board with the same you know, thing, but the idea of uh, nuclear power and the fallout, little fallout from Chernobyl um, very much affected Germany. And so the willingness to put up with nuclear power plants is uh, fairly low. From a journalistic perspective, like I, I have to wonder when you said that the EU announced this like on New Year's Eve, right? Like Correct. right before 2022, do you think that was strategic in any way? Like, Oh, no doubt. Yes, they... <laughs> very much are aware of that this is a very uh, contentious topic and so they tried to bury it and it probably succeeded to some degree but it's all over the papers and the green party has a real problem with its membership now because the membership is saying absolutely not while the green leadership of course is in power they have to make compromises they have to somehow govern within the uh, European Union. And yeah, that's the crash and clash with reality that I talked about earlier. Government obviously cares about it, but to what extent do you think the, the people, like obviously it gets on newsstands to some extent, but do you think people are educating themselves like actively outside of just passing by a newsstand or seeing it pop up on their social media feed? Like what is the, 
I don't know if you have any input on the German response to this, the general public response. I think that alternative and sustainable energy are definitely topics that Germans care about and that they've been invested in for a long time. Um, if we're talking about, you know, garbage collection and how incredibly complicated that system is in Germany, especially compared to the US, for a country to do that, not always willingly, but generally doing it, um, that means they have really adapted to that kind of thinking. And this will not be something that will go down well with the coalition. Um, this is, yeah, going to be an issue. And as I said before, it is very unlikely that the scores of the EU is going to be reversed. They just don't have the majority to vote against it. How does that affect Scholz's direction? Well, Scholz um, is, of course, generally pro-environmentalism, uh, pro, um, but not as much as the Green Party is. And Scholz really has a pandemic on his hands still that uh, is accelerating in Germany, just as it is in Minnesota right now. Um, we are not, you know, anywhere near where France is with cases or where England has been, but it's coming and it's quite uh, clear that it's coming. Um, interestingly, uh, um, we have a new health minister um, and his... Uh, focus is on the pandemic as he is an epidemiologist. Um, Lauterbach is his name. And um, as opposed to our former health minister, he is actually a doctor, he's a professor, and he's very much in the topic and makes clear announcements. They are not as harsh anymore as before he became a health minister. And um, there was a bit of discussion in the SPD whether they really wanted him in that position, but uh, he has some sort of support of 70 to 80 percent of the population. And in the end, Olaf Scholz really didn't have a choice but to uh, pick him. Uh, he is not known for the best uh, interdisciplinary uh, communication skills, let's say. Um, he is a bit on the odd side. You know, definitely quirky, uh, likes to work in the middle of the night, which his colleagues, you know, are generally not uh, available at that point. Um, but there's no question he's coming with a lot of expertise. And in a time like this now, again, I think Olaf Scholz is stepping back to some degree um, to let his health minister handle this pandemic as well. It is possibly or it is possible at all. I think for, for any political leadership obviously the pandemic is is the elephant in the room to move that somehow down the road and improve the position of the entire country and when i do read the news uh, austrian germany new german news i do see still some breakout headlines regarding uh, demonstrations and objections uh, to the measures that are being put forth to essentially safeguard the larger population. How is that still continuing? Is it smaller pockets now? Have people slowly become uh, agreeable to the idea that this pandemic is real and that the safeguards that are being put in place are actually making sense? Or is there still a larger objection that we just don't get communicated here in the US? I think there are definitely people that feel that the pandemic is um, fabricated, but that is really a very small um, percentage of the population. I think the greater resistance is in the measures that are being taken mm -hmm. uh, and one of them would be the vaccine mandate right in germany the discussion is going on as well 
before the change of the year, it was said, oh, definitely there will be a mandate for vaccinations, probably for everyone. Um, it was supposed to be put in place, I believe, by February 15th yeah. or something like that. That has softened quite a bit. Um, a lot of the demonstrations that you see in the streets are by people that just don't want to get vaccinated. But we have to look at the facts, too, that the majority of Germans are vaccinated and that, uh, per usual, it is much more you know, interesting to cover a loud, possibly violent outbreak or protest in the streets than somebody sitting at home on the couch was vaccinated and not really going outside in order to not, right. you know, push the pandemic further. So a very loud minority is expressing opinions that the majority doesn't share. Um, and that is the same thing, which brings me to the FDP, the yellow party, the um, free liberals, because even within them, they have different opinions on this vaccination situation. Before the election, you know, they were, as we have discussed in this podcast before, very much, oh, no, never, not vaccination mandates. Um, quite the opposite. We need to take out all the measures that are in place now. Everything has to get back to normal. Well, then they got elected. Reality hit. Um, we're dealing with, you know, Delta and Omicron. Um, yeah, taking away all the measures clearly isn't working in a real situation, theoretically, maybe, but not in this situation. So within the free liberals, their leader, Christian Lindner, has now said he is not against a vaccination mandate, while some high ups in his party are absolutely against it and are aghast at how a liberal politician could possibly be for a vaccination mandate. Again, they are arriving in reality. They have to deal with real political problems. It's not just theoretical anymore. And it's going to be interesting to see where this is going. Um, the ideas for parliamentarians to vote according to their conscience in parliament when this vote comes up, that means they are not bound by the um, decision their parties are making. And we will see what happens during that vote, if and when that will happen. When we look to France again uh, for just a brief second, uh, Macron just was in the headline saying that he's uh, really just at this point aiming at, pardon the choice of verbiage here, but to piss off the unvaccinated uh, to the degree that they finally fall in line or restrict their room for movement so much that they have no other choice but to actually fall in line. So it's rather aggressive language, if you will, which is perhaps a little bit uncommon for somebody who is uh, leading an entire nation. What do we see in terms of language choices coming from Schultz or now at this point also from Lindner, uh, people who have previously had objections and or were proponents of the vaccination? Is it just as aggressive? Are people losing their, their patience, if you will? Or does leadership lose its patience? What, what do we see there on difference in terms of word choices? Um, people are definitely losing their patience. Um, I don't know that anybody has gone into the vulgar tones that uh, Macron did. Yeah. And I would like to add, I was in Paris uh, between Christmas and New Year's, and it was as if there wasn't a pandemic. I mean, it was remarkable. People were checking vaccinations, maybe, but other than that, life really seemed to be going on per usual. Um, however, 
um, there are certain people that have, of course, lost their patients. Um, the head of the Robert Koch Institute um, did famously so when he really had sort of an outburst in a press conference um, and making it very clear that he is very fed up with the people that aren't getting vaccinated. Um, the question is how many of these people that aren't vaccinated yet are still convincible? There will be new vaccinations coming out now, some that don't uh, rely on the spike protein, some that are a bit more old fashioned. Uh, and I'm really not a vaccination specialist here by any stretch of the imagination. Mm -hmm. But I personally know of some people that say, yes, we are going to get vaccinated now with these more old fashioned vaccinations. Mm -hmm. So does that get us to where we need to be at 85 or 90% of the population? I doubt it, um, but people are certainly losing their patience. You know, common people that are not in any governmental functions are losing their patients because they feel, okay, we've gotten vaccinated. We are carrying part of this risk of vaccination, but because not everybody does it, it's more futile. Yeah. Uh, in, interestingly, Audra carried some data together just to underline the whole discussion here. So, so far in Germany, 69% of the population has been vaccinated with two doses and 21.3% have received their booster shot. Now, when we take into consideration what in America, American media is being portrayed, that the booster shot is uh, detrimental to actually having uh, defenses against Omicron, then 21% uh, is a rather low number to sustain the impact of Omicron. So there's probably something else coming down the line as far as uh, governmental reaction is concerned. In Austria, we have the same issue that uh, vaccination was supposed to be mandated beginning of February. That, I think, also has softened in Austria. So they are taking very much a similar line to the Germans. But uh, I think... The, the, the longer ranging impact is probably going to affect the entire politics of how it is being rolled out. So again, the sort of the question goes back to where is Schultz right now and how many things does he have to essentially amend because he can't get them through uh, because of the vaccination uh, requirements or lack thereof? Does it, does it change the political agenda? Does it uh, slow it down? Does it, uh, where is this going? Oh, it definitely slows it down. I mean, there's, of course, work being done in the background that isn't Omicron related. But if you look at the headlines in German newspapers, it is pretty, pretty clear what the priorities are. And especially now with numbers spiking again, that's where it is all going. Um, Annalena Baerbock is in Washington right now. Um, our new foreign minister or secretary of state, I suppose you would say here. Um, she's making friends and acquaintances here with the American government. There are hopes on her from the side of the Americans. She has been much more critical of Putin and of the gas pipeline um, coming to Germany, going through Russia um, than Angela Merkel ever has been. So um, it is happening in the background. There are things happening, but there is a big focus on Omicron. And if, again, you're looking at the German newspapers, there is, it's very clear where the head headlines are. Um, I mean, talking about Baerbock, I've been seeing a lot of her, at least in like the like English, like to German, like news situations. I've been seeing her name come up a lot. Do you think there's any reason for that? Besides like she has a higher positionality, obviously within the German government. But what, what is this fixation on her in particular? 
I think that a secretary of state in Germany has a very prominent position and it's always been like that. Um, they put on a lot of miles. Um, part of their appeal is a high visibility, of course. Um, of course, she's a woman. She's the first um, foreign minister in Germany that is female. Uh, and there are a lot of expectations on her. Um, she will probably have to grow into being a foreign minister but she's taking all the right steps. She went to her first meetings in France by train, not by plane, mm -hmm. um, which is somewhat unheard of. Um, so far, she's been, uh, what is it, putting her money where her mouth is or however that saying yeah. goes. Yeah. Um, and people are watching, of course. Um, she does not have great uh, approval rates at this point. From the developments as we see politics um, slowly being played out with the new coalition. Is there any measurable or even ideological effect as to how it could play out with uh, German-American relations? Uh, is there anything on the horizon that you can see that it would perhaps mend the climate that uh, was perhaps negatively affected during the previous administration in the U.S.? Where are we going there? Yeah, I don't know that... Uh there at this point is a lot of mending necessarily going on. I mean, the fact that uh, Biden was uh, elected into office already started a huge mending process, mm -hmm. um, even though his policies aren't necessarily, you know, in agreement with um, European policies, but just the tone between the two has significantly increased or improved really. Mm -hmm. um, Again, as far as Russia and possibly China are concerned, this new government is probably more in line with the American government, U.S. American government than the former government was. However, Angela Merkel has proved to be a very, very reliable partner for the United States. Um, they knew exactly what to expect from her. And uh, if we recall her meeting Donald Trump, I mean, she was not faced particularly uh, by his antics. Um, so... I think the behind the scenes working relationships has has been there always, and that's what people are building on now. As as far as the the improving of the relationships between the U.S. and Germany is concerned, uh, there are some conversations that are going down the path of opening up. Um, perhaps the ease of the process to go to Germany and to remain for longer. And we did talk about what could this mean for Americans wanting to go to Germany and perhaps gain citizenship, dual citizenship, what have you. There was uh, just recently a, an interview, not an interview, a speech that was released online by Schultz that uh, he is proposing the idea of reducing the requirements to be in Germany for five uh, to five years to then apply for citizenship. That is a quite significant switch to where we are now. Whether this is going to play out or not obviously remains to be seen, but perhaps we can shine a quick spotlight on what it is now before we actually see what's what the future is going to be in austria it's 15 years to apply for citizenship do you remember what it, what it is in germany katrin i believe it was eight okay at some point but i am not really very much in that topic i can sure. just tell you that um for the previous administration the focus always was on the turkish immigrants and to force them to take sides then, you know, between Turkish and German citizenship, and that really everyone else was not so much part of the equation. It really was directed at uh, the main 
immigration population in Germany. Um, but yeah, it looks like uh, with this administration that is going to change. And I don't know. I mean, I think it's certainly not going to get more restrictive, but we will, you know, see where it's going. Other than that, uh, what is what is the mood currently on the ground, so to speak, with the Germans and the current political representation as it shapes up to be, as it unfolds after 16 years of Merkel? Uh, there certainly are changes, there are new faces, there is new rhetoric. What is the mood on the ground right now? Well, I can tell you about my personal um, Absolutely. environment. And uh, I would say that even people that have voted CDU uh, religiously for many years actually went and voted left of center this time. And that for many people, it looks like there's some hope on the horizon for some change, for some positive change um, to get a little bit more with where the population actually stands. And of course, we also have the AFD going on. So, you know, very conservative, reactionary uh, right-wingers, but as a whole, the German population is further than the government and the laws are. I mean, we had seen that in gay marriage, of course, we had seen that in abortion rights, and I believe that will just continue. Again, the large fights, exactly that, uh, nuclear power, abortion, and gay marriage, they're over in Germany. Um, so we will see where the new fault lines are going to come up now that we have a new government. I know that the CDU is expected to steer further to the right now, that they are the new opposition party. How do you think this will impact, um, I guess, the overall political landscape, if not what passes and what happens and what changes and progress is made? Uh, I think... Uh shift to the right is inevitable because Frau Merkel really was not a right winger and she was very much center um, and many within the CDU had accused her of losing the way of the party but Friedrich Merz who is the new leader now of the CDU has made it very clear a week or two ago that anybody who attempts any sort of cooperation with the AFD will be excluded from the party and there is a individual right now um, Hans-Georg Maaßen, who used to be the um, head of the constitutional agencies that, uh, you know, are supposed to take care of uh, watching that the constitution isn't getting attacked, who has been making bizarre statements, anti-vaxxer statements now. He ran for the CDU um, in his area where he's from. He lost the vote to an SPD person. Um, and there are many in the CDU that are asking him to resign from the party because he's become too right wing. So it's going to be interesting to see where they kind of draw the line. You know, what is too far right? Um, Friedrich Merz is pragmatic. Uh, he will want the party to be electable. Um, and that doesn't mean that they should shift too far right because the AFD is covering that field. And, you know, in the past, the CDU has always been kind of fishing on that right side, but that pond now is taken by an actual party. And so they have to be able to convince more of the middle, which is where Frau Merkel had, was really strong. And we'll see where that is going. Lots of moving elements. And I think it's just the central 
piece that everything else is moving around is just simply continuing to be that pandemic response. And uh, I don't know if we're going to ever escape this, at least not for the foreseeable future, but it's going to be interesting to see how the Germans are going to react uh, and mold their policies around just keeping the larger population safe and uh, hopefully just uh, productive and... Yeah, I mean, tough, tough environment for anyone. And certainly good to see, though, that the Germans have come together and uh, decided on a government relatively quickly. Because when I remember last time we talked, we expected perhaps a little bit longer of a process uh, before the new, co the new coalition was formed. To me, it seemed to be actually relatively quick. Does that still hold water or is, am I off base here? Well, it certainly was quicker than the time before that. Yeah. Um, I guess I was, I would have guessed it would have been over a couple of weeks before, but it didn't then. But in the end, they got there. They were very, very um, respectful um, negotiations. Nothing was leaked except for in the beginning by the CDU that catapulted itself out of the coalition talks then basically because they did leak information. Nobody else leaked anything. Um, and everybody talked about how much they respect the other parties, which is kind of, you know, a welcome, <laughs> yeah, new tone, <laughs> I guess I would say. Um, so it went over pretty smoothly. I mean, there were fought or hard battles that were fought in the background, but it all happened with a certain respect for each other. Respectful politics, what a novel idea. Maybe we can uh, bring some of this over here and uh, bring some <laughs> civility back into the political process. But that's probably a topic for another day. Uh, Catherine, anything else we need to add? Oh, there's so much we need to add, but I think we're kind of out of time. Yes, we are. So in other words, we'll add at some later point in time. Catherine, it was great to have you back. We need to do this trio thing a little more frequently and roll you back into the grammar side of things. No? <laughs> I'm withholding comments right now. Yes. Oh, fair enough. All right. With that, we'll wrap up this episode. It was Katrin back in the trio and Audra as well. Good to see you. Good to see you. <laughs> and it's Gunther signing off. This is Here and There, the podcast of the Germanic American Institutes. Thanks for joining us as... Of course, always, if you do have your podcast player up, please hit the five-star button. If you can't hit that because there's something we need to improve, please email us to podcast at gaimn.org. Other than that, thank you so much for sticking around and we'll hear you again next time. <laughs> <laughs>